You're a little early. Um, I'm just, my wife is busy at work. She hasn't come home, so I Uber eats dinner and uh, just hanging around waiting for waiting for something to happen. Uh, are you under the weather? I'm glad that you noticed that because I was a little worried that nobody would notice. <laughs> no, no, you, you do sound a little rough. <laughs> I, I think I got the back-to-school virus. Oh. It's the most wonderful time of the year. You know, I was thinking about that. September, October rolls around. All the little germ factories are packed together in tiny classrooms. Yep. And they communicate these diseases to each other and to the parents and the rest of the family. Yes. Live from Studio 3B, now with 1.2 billion subscribers on iTunes, Spotify, and GeoCities. This is the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth, featuring musical guests Sting. Bjork is back in virtual reality. We'll look at what Iceland's biggest export is offering with Dan Phil of VR Studio Black Slope. Plus, the state of VR concerts and why I'm going to bail on our CES 2020 coverage for, uh, no, wait a second. One of the more colorful rock stars in Van Halen history. <laughs> you weren't gonna read worst rock stars like I wrote it? No, I wasn't. Oh. <gasps> really? Really. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. One of the things about broadcasting is that if you can't talk, you can't work. Yes. And there was a well, period... No, no, they'll make you work. They just won't put you on the air. Well, no, that was where I was going with this. In the early part of the 90s, for whatever reason, I uh, ended up having some serious tonsil problems. And I had to I eventually had to have them out. But before that happened, I kept coming down with laryngitis. And I would... You know, croaky doesn't even begin to describe how I sounded. I... I would open my mouth, I would get two or three words into something, and they would just go away. And there was this one guy who's dead now, uh, insisted that I come to work. Oh, no, it sounds natural. It sounds real. No, it doesn't. <laughs> In a world. Oh, God, it was, it was terrible. Yeah, it's the rumble underneath it that kind of makes it gross. It does. And, you know, but not only the rumble underneath, but what would eventually happen is that I would run out of something in my larynx and then I would squeak. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and you, you sound like that kid from The Simpsons. Exactly. I would go from something really rough and growly to something squeaky like the kid in The Simpsons. It actually is bad for your voice because when yeah. you're on the air, you have to have a certain amount of, it's, it's almost like singing. In the sense that you have to, you know, control your voice in a way that you don't necessarily have to in in real life. It is your instrument. It is your instrument, and I was damaging that instrument, and it ended up causing me all manner of throat problems for years because this guy wouldn't give me, you know, a day off to just sit and be quiet. I, you know, I'll do some work in the office. I'll file records or something, but just don't make me talk. Uh uh, wouldn't hear of it. Fisherman's friend. I was warned, is your biggest enemy in broadcasting. How's that? Because it dries out the vocal cords, the, the, the literal cords in your throat. Uh -huh. And once something dries out, it becomes brittle and it's more inclined to crack. So you're, you're doing more damage. And the other thing, too, is that when you do lose your voice, we have a tendency to whisper. Yeah. 
whispering is worse for your vocal cords than just speaking softly. Yes, it is. And I'm so glad that those problems have disappeared for me for quite some time. And now with you, you don't have to be on the air every day. So if you do get sick, it's it's not the crisis it used to be. Now, I know what that sounds like to people who don't work in broadcasting. Oh, poor you. You've got a bit of a cold. Yeah. It's not the same because of, like you say, the voice is the instrument. And nobody wants to watch or listen to somebody who's sick. Yeah. Yeah, and you can see it. Even if the makeup on TV masks the pale, dead, alien, gray nature of your skin. Oh, and the red eyes. You can see it in the glassiness in the eyes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the thing for me was, in addition to my little one going off to school for the first time and getting everything and bringing it home and giving it to me, not only do the little ones bounce back like within 24 hours, whereas you were out for three straight days, mm -hmm. at the same time... We had gutted the house, and I took down the drywall in the basement behind the couch underneath the window on which I sat, well, on the couch on which I sat, to watch TV at the end of a long, hard day. And as I pulled down that drywall behind it, hit me like a Mac. 150 square feet of inch-thick, fuzzy black mold. Mold and fungus and, oh, God. And as soon as we cleaned that up, the three-month rotation of illness went away. Yeah, uh, mold is a terrible thing. Um, my wife has a problem with uh, eye infections and, and sinus infections. And she claims that it's, it's allergies. But no, I think she's got some sort of fungal or mold infection. Yeah, my biggest fear is that when we, um, is that I'm allergic to my house because mm. it's, it's a century home. It's probably leaked for like the entire Great Depression. Mm. And as soon as we pulled down the, the, the drywall and the ceiling and the plaster and laugh, I just am not looking forward to knowing what's really up there. That's probably continuing to make me sick on a regular basis. No, well, asbestos, probably. You know what? Funny you should say asbestos, because asbestos was a very big thing uh, for homes that were built in, like, the 1920s, 1930s. Mm -hmm. My house was built um, in 1912, and we just missed the big jump in asbestos um, in renovations but I knew guys who had done renovations on their homes and they were pulling up tiles like those plasticky style uh, kitchen laminate floor tiles. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, why are you doing that? There's a really high chance that all of those tiles are asbestos. Yeah, I would rather work in Chernobyl. <laughs> Have you been watching the, the Netflix or what, what, is it Netflix or is it HBO? Who is it? HBO. It was, it's, it's, it's very good. They do a uh, pretty good uh, job of explaining the science. And I was hoping to actually go to Chernobyl next month. Still might happen. I I'm supposed to, or was supposed to go to a music festival in Warsaw. And I'd only be there for a couple of days. And I thought, well, that'd be kind of a waste to go all that way just for two days. So I checked the schedules and for $95, I could fly down to Kiev and get a car and go to Chernobyl. Well, have you looked into the tours that they do for Pripyat? I have. Because that's what's fascinating to me for two reasons. One, that's the town um, of like 50,000 people back in 1979 uh, when they first 86. opened it up. Well, yeah, 86 was when the 86, disaster, okay. but they yeah. opened it up in 1979 to the public. 
to the public. It, it was a town that was built to, to basically manage Chernobyl. Yeah. And when the disaster happened, that was the town that was evacuated. And what's fascinating to me is that as a big geek, I played shoot 'em up video games that took place in Pripyat. No, really? What game? Um, I believe it's Call of Duty. No kidding. It's been a long time. I was just a lieutenant back then, doing some wet work. Chernobyl, Christmas for the bad guys. Even a decade later, a lot of them still used it to get their hands on nuclear material. A lot of them, including one, Imran Zakayev. Of course, we couldn't just let that happen. Cash for spent fuel rods. <laughs> That's one hell of a recipe for destruction. It was the first time our government had authorized an assassination order since the Second World War. I was under the command of Captain McMillan. But the point is, is that there's the there's the Ferris wheel mm -hmm. uh, in Pripyat that's you know infamous as 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 a photograph, and we played shoot 'em up in the buildings and around that particular monument, uh, and then to find out that today you can in fact go there so long as you've got a Geiger counter and a little badge that tells you when it's time to leave. Yep, you don't want to take in too many retkins. Yeah, exactly. Well, I don't know if I'll end up going, but I, that is one of my disaster tourism. Um, you have multiple disaster tourism bucket list items? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we've been to Tiananmen Square, been to the DMZ, been to, uh, where else have we gone? Uh, the Texas State Book Depository. You know, that's the kind of stuff we like. We've been to the tunnel in, in Paris where Princess Di died. Um, How weird are you? Oh, completely. <laughs> Brandenburg Gate, the Berlin Wall, we've been there. Admittedly, a lot better than, and far more informative than just sitting on your ass baking in the sun on a beach. Rather do something like that than go to Sandals. Sorry, Sandals. Want to show your love of the world's most popular podcast, but don't want to open your wallet? Rate and review The Big Show on iTunes and Stitcher. We're not above bribing you either. The craziest review could win you free crap from the Geeks and Beats swag store. So Bjork is back. You know that, right? Yes, she is going to finally release that VR record of hers. Yes, the Bjork Digital Exhibition that had been apparently making the rounds for various museums worldwide since late 2016 is now coming to VR in its entirety, the 2015 album Volnicura, or Volnicura? Whatever, it doesn't matter. It's, it's Bjorkish, doesn't matter. I was trying to explain Bjork to my daughter at dinner tonight uh, by pointing out that she uh, she had this... Th have you seen the video of Bjork taking apart the back <laughs> of her television? Uh, that's Bjork. 
is what it looks like. Look at this. This looks like a city, like a little model of a city. And all the houses which are here and streets. This is maybe an elevator to go up, up there. And here are all the wires, these wires. They really take care, take care of all the electrons when they come through here. Yeah, that sounds about Bjork. Yeah. So for $30, uh, the virtual reality album is available on Steam, which means if you've got an Oculus Rift VR headset, a Valve Index, an HTC Vive, one of those higher end models, you can spend the 30 bucks and get this album featuring a collection of live action 360 video and real time rendered experiences, which are two very different things. I do not have any of that equipment, therefore I'm going to rely on you to tell me exactly what's going on. Did you not get like a Samsung Gear VR at some I point? I just sent it back. You sent it back? They had. They asked for it back. They asked for it back. Well, that's, that's a shame because you are a friend of mine on Steam and I noticed uh, that you haven't been doing much lately. No, because I don't have anything. So the seven tracks that headset owners will get to experience with the full VR visuals, Not Get, Family, Stone Milker, Lion Song, Mouth Mantra, Black Lake, and Quicksand. But what's important to point out that there is a big difference between live action 360 video and real time rendered experience. So I wanted to get a, a sense as to where we are in that world and where music goes from here. Maybe a little VR music brainstorming session. Joining us from VR studio Dark Slope is Dan Phil. Dan, thank you for joining us. Oh, no, my pleasure. So I, I suppose for Alan's benefit, we need to point out that if you're dropping 30 bucks on this Bjork digital exhibition, that there's a big difference in the quality between a live-action 360 video and actual real-time rendered VR. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was the the Bjork pieces were absolutely groundbreaking when they came out a few years ago, and uh, it's still a great kind of home experience. But uh, to truly immerse yourself, you want to end up in a situation where. Uh, like you did, uh, Michael, you put on a backpack that's untethered, you enter a world where you take in the persona of an avatar, and you're able to engage with other people in real time. And that is truly the, the dream and the real experience of sort of letting yourself uh, fully understand the VR world. But isn't that ultimately what we're trying to accomplish for music as well? Oh, absolutely. I mean, one of the most incredible things about um, VR right now is actually not the graphic fidelity. Uh, if anything, we're used to sort of having a 4K experience. And uh, at this time, you know, the, the um, resolution, even on the best headsets, we're using the uh, Windows Mixed Reality headset, it's, which is a 1440 by 1440 resolution uh, compared to 4K, which is sort of 3840 by 2160. But the audio is absolutely incredible. And uh, it literally can help you sort of feel like you're in a completely different world. And so I think that that's actually what's con con convincing your brain that there's really interesting things that are going on. And I mean, for us in our projects, uh, the audio consists of everything from having sort of uh, a sound bed to uh, a musical score to even using um, audio wavelengths for haptic feedback. And uh, that, that's really wait, 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 wait. Hang, hang on. <laughs> Explain that one to me. <laughs> what do you mean audio waves is haptic feedback? If you're able to use a device like a haptic uh, or be haptic vest like we're using, the sound waves themselves create these pulses that will give you the sense that you can feel things like wind 
where you can feel things like ambient rumbling in the distance. Prime example, I'm a big fan of Elite Dangerous in VR, where you get to be a real-life Han Solo inside a Millennium Falcon-style ship, and I installed a device called the Butt Kicker that <laughs> strips out all of the mid- and high-end range audio, and if it's a rumble, it literally rumbles my seat. So when I click the button to, to raise the landing gear and it goes ka-clunk, I feel the landing gear rise. Ship released. Engines engaged. around back in the 1970s the movie was like earthquake <laughs> ready to engage I, I think the difference is that you're actually wearing it okay. and feeling it right on your body but I think it's almost like the comparison would be, you know, seeing a movie where there's green screen behind as compared to now having virtual productions where you literally have got physical objects that don't exist that are in front of you. Okay. And it's an audio treatment in the same way. All right, I'm schooled. Fine. It's actually really quite remarkable because you invited us down. Of course, Alan being Mr. Big Shot, he's very busy. <laughs> very, very busy. So it was the dead of summer. My daughter and I came down to Dark Slope Studios to experience Scary Girl. Oh, and it was such a pleasure having you come down. And it was actually super exciting to see your daughter's reaction as well. Um, I mean, Scary Girl is based on a graphic novel by a, a really wonderful artist named Nathan Jervicious. And basically it tells the story of this loser named Dr. Maybe whose daughter has passed away and he tries to use all his conjuring to bring her back and ends up creating this creature that's got a squid arm and is missing an eye and has this kind of bone uh, for another arm and he thinks it's disgusting and he throws it away and he tries again and again to create uh, his daughter back and he keeps creating reject after reject. And in our experience, which uh, is about a 20 minute experience, you play the role of the rejects. And so up to eight people materialize in kind of a Ready Player One style environment as a sort of steampunky looking avatar. And your goal is basically to try and stop Dr. Maybe. And we got a chance to interview him about turning a, a graphic novel into a VR experience. As creative director, what does that mean in a 3D virtual world? That's very interesting. It's sort of it's sort of a new term from maybe for me. I'm sort of probably more used to say art directing, but creative directing is that sort of one level up where not only are you kind of doing the nuances of a of just one project, but you're having to put your fingers in multiple pies, looking at multiple uh, uh, VR and AR projects um, over the course of a year or two years. What's it like to take 
a graphic novel and turn it into a VR experience because they're so very different mediums. Extremely different. In fact, um, it was a, a major challenge initially because you are fairly passive uh, audience when you're reading a book. I mean, you do have some sort of activity. You've got to turn the page. You you can time out how long you want to read a, a graphic novel. But with a VR experience, uh, especially free roam, you have no control of where a person will go. So you have to kind of almost wrangle like a like um, you know kind of wild animals. Uh, people through an environment, make them look in a certain direction, make them listen to a certain uh, sound, uh, get them through the, the level in an appropriate time and still tell a, an effective story where people come away feeling satisfied. So in this case, I got to stride, you know, maybe 12, 15, 20 paces in one direction before I had to worry about hitting the wall. And I didn't even think about it because I, I didn't have to. That's all because of you and the way you've designed the layout of any given level to ensure that I don't feel like I'm about to hit a wall. Well, I mean, uh, there's definitely a big team that's helped me uh, oh, sure. yeah. stop, stop people hitting yeah. walls. But, but, but you're, yes. you're the guy who's you're at the top, so you get all the credit oh, and all the blame, quite frankly, if it goes wrong, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, the one thing is, is that, especially when we're first starting, is that creating a, an interesting barrier that doesn't feel like you are necessarily... Uh, contained within a space is is a really um, uh, hard thing to do because you want to make people feel like they can go anywhere, but you create a, a natural barrier that seems like, well, if I go over there, I'll fall off the edge of this cliff or I'll um, walk into a tree. So that creates the, the natural barriers. And in creating kind of a free roam VR space, you're trying to kind of make the environment feel natural enough that it makes it feel big, even though the space is relatively small. And if you manage to accomplish that, you also speak to our own sort of sense of self-preservation. There were moments where I could have just stepped off the raft into the water, but every part of my brain went, don't do that, even though in the real world, I know I wasn't going to get wet. Yeah, well, that's the thing is that the human mind, um, you can predict certain things and people do not want to fall down a giant hole. Uh, they don't probably want to get hit by uh, a rolling ball or a... Uh, you know, a stalactite that's about to drop on their heads. So we could predict generally that people will want to avoid these things. They'll they'll walk a certain way. Um, you probably experienced there's a giant hole in the uh, in a cave. Ninety nine percent of people um, will always be intimidated of walking off the, the the path and into the the whole space because our brains naturally want us to walk on a safe space. And so we can get people to walk anywhere we want by creating these danger zones and safe spaces. Tell me about the, that evolution of the storytelling though, because you can't just, as I say, take a book and put it into VR. So what are some of the lessons you learned uh, along the way to making Scary Girl? I mean, uh, making Scary Girl was a, um, it was a pretty organic process as far as storyboarding first, what would my, um, my initial walk through the world be? And so, so you uh, still storyboard just so like a traditional 2d exactly storyboarding is storyboarding is a great way to begin because, um, especially in free roam, because you want to kind of go, you know, where do I begin this world in this world? Where do I want to end? Um, do I want to get people to, uh, walk around a lot in this world? Because in free roam, there's no point in being stationary. You want people to experience the entire world. So you storyboard the beats out. How would I get them from A to B? 
and then what would happen that makes me go then from left to right and then what makes me come back to the start again and so storyboarding is is the biggest thing and i would say in future i'd like to be more involved and and more careful about my storyboarding processes um, because i feel like maybe at the time i didn't quite exactly know uh the the nuances of free roam vr so having this uh kind of um uh second go and doing it all again i would know all my kind of limitations i think tell me about the technology because you finally got scary girl up and running yet the technology's moved on beyond that i can imagine it sort of feels like you're running to stand still with all these new leaps and bounds in, in the tech let alone the storytelling yeah i mean uh, you know tech's you know changing so quickly and i think when we first began we wanted to get the uh the best technology we could find so that related also to the game engine. We wanted the what we thought was the best game engine for this. Um, we're using Unreal or Unity? Unreal. Yep. So, ah, yeah. So yeah. it takes me back to Unreal Tournament. Yes. Back, it's yeah, yeah, the yeah. basis of the technology from the early 90s. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Unreal is actually, I mean, it's fantastic for, especially for kind of creating kind of this real kind of rich uh, universe that you know has amazing lighting. You can do kind of you know interesting rendering that feels realistic. Um, it's a little bit different to Unity, but both have their kind of advantages and, and disadvantages. Um, we also wanted to get, you know, the best yeah, computers we could get at the time, the best headsets. And so even though we're kind of, you know, a year and a half on from when we began, um, it feels as though we're still not um, ancient technology. We're still kind of hovering around generally better than what most people have. But we know that we're going to try something even uh, more exciting now because we've got newer technology. So there's stuff that's lighter that doesn't even require headsets now. There's stuff that um, has inside-out tracking. There's all these amazing where you don't need the ex exterior sensors. Exactly, that we're exactly. Because that's a very it's an expensive setup. Um, not many people can have that mm -hmm. um, in their house or um, even as a uh, vendor. You can't afford to buy that. So you know, having uh, no kind of sensors anywhere is a is a real advantage and much much cheaper as well. So what's next as far as this technology goes, as far as you're concerned? I mean, I, I mean, as a storyteller and someone that loves creating kind of, you know, rich universes, uh, I'm very excited about uh, the Oculus Quest, doing things with that. I think it's a, it's a, it doesn't require backpacks. It's a very... Um, no tether. There's no tether. Um, there's no computer involved. The computer is sort of in the headset. Um, it's a very, uh, it's very lightweight, cheap um, tool, um, but it's uh, it is also very flexible as well. So I want to start for me, and I think that a lot of people are going to be moving to the Quest because of its affordability, because of its access to home users. Um, we're going to see a lot of that uh, in the future, and I think that's going to open up a lot of different, say, filmmakers, a lot of different game designers wanting to use that as a platform to make their content. If we were to jump 10 years into the future, where is the storytelling when it comes to the technology? Like, we'll go see a, a big screen movie. We'll go see a movie in our basements. Um, but where are we, how are we consuming content 10 years from now when it comes to VR? That's, that's a very interesting question. And it could be that VR has a, I would say a more tactile, uh aspect to it when it comes to movie watching so it wouldn't surprise me if it was very common to be you know going to a movie theater where not only am i wearing the headset but i'm also experiencing ta with tactile forms the actual thing itself so for instance i'm watching john wick suddenly i'm uh um going into his car and right. being able to drive his car or i'm you know 
fighting superheroes uh, in Avengers with the headset on, but I'm part of the movie. So it's this sort of part movie, part sort of interaction that I'd be experiencing. I wonder if I'm just even use if the question is even invalid, you know, do we even consider this experience the same category as a movie? Because movies are passive. This is wholly active and the story depends on you. That's true. Yeah. I mean, I would I'd still say that storytelling um, is storytelling, is storytelling, is storytelling. I think that it doesn't matter what you, how you want to tell a story, it needs to be a good story. So if, whether it's a book or a, or a film or a VR experience, the, the basic principles of storytelling should always be there. It's more about the challenges of how do I get an audience to uh, react or um, participate in more um, interactive uh, type mediums. So VR is a, is, can be a passive thing if it's at home, but if you're going to do a free roam, you know, game or a, or a film, it's very, very active. Yeah. When I spoke to the CEO of Cineplex, which put in a ton of VR pods in some of their prime locations for a while, I pulled them out. It didn't seem to have the traction. Why do you suppose that is? Is it maybe again back tied to the idea that, you know, movies in VR, they're not the same thing? Actually, I was just uh, talking to my friend about that because, you know, we go to, we used to go to the Scotiabank um, and, and there was the, you know, the place downstairs. I actually think it's because, and this is just me from a visual standpoint, it looked really uninviting. It was, it was like these, these sort of dark, gloomy boxes that had no um, kind of reason for me to want to venture into almost like a, a dungeon, whereas... You go to, say, other locations that may do things a little bit more um, like a like a fun fair or a, um, a more engaging family experience. I, didn't, I actually don't think that those places were as family-orientated or as um, well-designed as they could have been. That's fascinating. So we looked at them and we went, oh, that seems dark and scary as opposed to light and airy. Exactly. That's I, I actually would walk by and go, what is this? It looks like a corporate kind of... I'm going to like a convention for uh, accountants and, uh, you know, some sort of, uh, I don't know. You're dull, at a trade dull, show. Yeah, a trade show. It looked like a trade show. That's what it looked like to me. So, yeah, I would say part of it's just like optics. Thank you so much for your time. No problem. So so you've got all these these creatures. How many creatures are there? Eight, you said? There's eight avatars, uh, but th those are just the... The, the human characters and of course scary girl and then just hundreds hundreds of other characters that uh, are within the world itself so so you've got all these scary girl rejects these mutants all with daddy issues <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about a different issue and it comes sort of full circle back into the audio component to virtual reality and giving you that immersive experience where you feel like you're present there's that that presence associated with it. Um, I spent some time talking to the folks at Five Rs, the festival uh, for augmented and virtual reality experiences. And uh, Karam had some really interesting points about music in VR. And you know, you have a very interest. You have a very significant interest in trying to bring music into the virtual reality world as well. Absolutely. I mean, uh, we use spatialized audio, which basically means that it's 360 degree audio. So when you turn your head towards something, uh, it's directional. And so you can, and as you walk towards different things within the experience, you'll hear them louder or uh, quieter. Um, we used Grace and Matthews as the audio post group and a 
really fantastic music director named Christian Hurst, who basically created seven original compositions. So there's sort of like a, a sound bed like you would have in a feature film. And uh, depending on the different areas that you're in, there's a sense of intensity when there's battles that are going on. There's a sense of serenity as you're traveling along uh, on a, a raft through the goo-filled sewers. And uh, it really kind of sell, helps to kind of sell the environment. And then layered above that is um, a, a collection of environmental sound effects and other ones that are uh, triggered by interactivity. So if you are sucking up goo, you've got this haptic feedback in your sucking weapon. And there's also that sense of goo sound <laughs> I'm effect. I'm sorry. Your sucking weapon? Yeah, I didn't think you'd let that one go. <laughs> I wasn't going to let that one go by. No. Yes. It's a physical gun. Like, like when, when, when you go to Dark Slope Studios, they give you a gun um, that, you know, you hold with two hands, and it's got that haptic feedback. So when you pull a trigger, you feel a sense that you've pulled that trigger. And then the audio component to it adds to that immersion as well. And, and I guess, Dan, the ultimate plan is that you take this technology and you license it to large uh, companies that want to do warehouse-scale VR with multiple people playing simultaneously. Well, that's exactly right. So the experiences that we're creating fit in a warehouse. They're 60 by 30 uh, feet. And um, we've licensed Scary Girl to an Australian company called Zero Latency, which has uh, 40 locations around the world. So we're going to see Scary Girl roll out by the end of the year. Uh, uh, it'll start in three locations and it should grow to 40 locations within six months. But Alan, let's talk about the VR concert experience because you've experienced that. Let, let me uh, just sort of go back to something I did about 10 days ago, maybe two weeks ago for uh, a group that I hit up called Entertainment TO. We had an AR VR uh, seminar. <gasps> and you and didn't invite me. Didn't I? It's been <sighs> on the website. Sorry. It was just a panel discussion. Don't worry about it. Sad trombone. I know. Next time. Um, and we were talking about some of the ways that music could actually be incorporated with VR and AR technology. And one of the guys was saying, well, I, I opened up by talking about a story. I, I, with the Samsung thing, I went to or participated in a Coldplay show in Chicago. And I found it really underwhelming. I mean, they had a good perch. I could move around from diff to different... Um, advantage uh, vantage points but the the latency was bad and the sound wasn't that great and it was 360 so it wasn't actually three-dimensional it just you could look around that's right yeah so i spent some time watching a couple on the second world make out show. <laughs> <laughs> i'm not a cold play fan anyway so um Clearly a where, are we, where are we going with 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 this in the future in terms of let's say the concert experience and the reason i bring that up is because a concert experience is not normally something that you can download. It's a communal thing that you have to participate in with a bunch of other people. So what? explain to me the VR, AR um, advantage. You know, I think you've just absolutely nailed it. The thing that I love about concerts is that sense of presence. You're there and you're experiencing this event, which is going to be completely different to anybody else's experience. Uh, if they go to a different concert, it is that time and that moment. And to me, that's what I love about these warehouse scale VR experiences. I think it's more about being in the world with other people together than it is about having this concert experience 
or video that is being kind of projected to you as an individual. And so I find a lot of VR experiences fall over if they literally feel like they are a video and you have some interactive options that all seem predetermined. The more that you're in an experience and you can look around and do whatever you want and you're doing that with other people, it, it becomes like sensational. And um, I think that in the music space, uh, you know, The weekend has done some cool stuff uh, with The Hills they did with Eminem. Um, I don't think I've seen anything yet in the concert space where it fully appreciates what the opportunities are with all the people that are there. What about the Marshmallow concert in Fortnite? Ooh, I don't know that. Ah, yes. Well, what he what he did was DJ Marshmallow had a within Fortnite he had two 10-minute sets and they have said that all the avatars were disabled to the point where you couldn't shoot each other. So you could only dance. You could only bounce around. <clears throat> and uh, they say that uh, 10 million people participated in this. And that the next step is to monetize this by, you know, if you went to a virtual concert like this, buy a t-shirt. Well, they monetized it. People spent on average $25. Did they? And they were buying virtual gear that would only show up within the game itself. Wow, okay. So, actually, I wonder if maybe the future of VR music isn't so much the concert experience, but the music creation experience. Because we all, anybody who's in music is familiar, at least tangentially, with MIDI. And treating it like the Lego building blocks of a musical environment where you can pull in one instrument from here, another from there, plug them in. You can have one control the other, things like that. To create a VR experience where you could play a virtual synthesizer with a bunch of other people who play virtual musical instruments themselves, that that communal experience might be far more interesting as a generation function than just as a, a a spectator sport i love that idea and especially if you add visuals to it you know i know it sounds really cheesy but if you think of like way back to sort of the late 70s and the 80s where people used to go to you know see like uh pink floyd and zeppelin at the uh, oh laser yeah. floyd <laughs> that's what you're talking about aren't you yeah, for sure. But if you're actually in that, if you can actually make some of the visuals appear as you're playing the ah. sounds, I think that that could be a cool sort of orchestra where you're all contributing to it at the same time. Hey, Alan, are you uh, at any are you at all any good at those Xbox style games? Uh, what do they call it? Gar not Garage Band. What's the one where there's oh like a, like a rock band and, rock and, and band Guitar and Hero? No, Guitar Hero. No, because there's a there's a VR game called Beat Saber. Oh, I've seen that, yes. It's essentially a lightsaber mixed in with Guitar Hero. Right, so you gotta whack the notes out of the air. Right. Mm -hmm, absolutely, and it's incredibly successful. It's the top title, actually, for home use right now, so it's incredibly fun. So you get to be a Jedi, but you're cr not creating music, but you're participating in the creation of the music. To a certain extent. I mean, you're following patterns as well. So it's uh, there's a certain level of aptitude as well. 
And you're right, you feel like a Jedi. It's got a real fun sensation when you succeed. Looks pretty physical too. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. Oh, dude, it's a good thing you don't have VR. Uh, well, maybe if you're looking to lose a couple of pounds, because <laughs> I find that VR can be an incredibly aerobic exercise. One of my favorite games is called Dead and Buried, where you play the role of a gunslinger from the 1800s who's been resurrected zombie style to fight off other zombie resurrected gunslingers in the Wild West. And you are literally squatting down behind a virtual barrel with your guns out. So your hands are up, your knees are bent, you're squatting behind this fake object that is, you know, of course, absorbing all those bullets. And then you're dodging back and forth, going up, shooting, ducking down again. That's a workout. You work up a sweat. I lost three pounds in the first <laughs> month alone. Three pounds playing games. Just playing video games. More mm. than the Nintendo Wii, which was the one that promised to get us off our asses off the couch. Right. Uh, more than that. I, I, I lost a ton of weight just playing shoot 'em up games. You haven't got that much to, 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 to spare. I know. Which means you hate me even more. I do. Yeah. And it's because you don't eat. No. <laughs> if we had food in pill form, I'd be happy with that. We've yeah, discussed this. So, Dan, what is the future of music in VR? Oh, I think anyone who says they know what the future of VR is uh, is full of it. I mean, I think that the tools themselves and how we use them are changing so quickly. But the kinds of things that interest me is almost like new forms of documentaries about people that interest you. Like if you were to go through the history of the blues and if we were able to allow you to be inside some of the locations where, you know, the music was created originally and you could be there with other people and you could play with their equipment and, and listen to what they're doing and understand the world around them. I think that that is just transformative. Um, I'm not convinced that the experience is just an adaptation of a concert so much. I think that it's got to be a greater kind of uh, uh, um, experience where you feel like you've got like presence within the environment itself. Uh, so like when I look at, um, you know, the example you were talking about of the releases from Bjork, um, I love the idea of being inside these worlds that the directors create, but then you have to allow the audience to take some ownership, to own some of the experience themselves. And um, I do think one other option and, um, I, that you sort of touched on before in terms of virtual uh, musical production is the ability to network with people all around the world and come and jam together uh, and take on whatever kind of avatar personality that you want. It's sort of like, you know, second life, but done properly, uh, where you've got real presence in the world. And I think that that's, that, that's an interesting opportunity, but I don't think anyone knows where it's going to go. September 13th to the 15th, 5Rs, the Festival of International Virtual and Augmented Reality Stories. You going to go? Absolutely. I'll see you there. All right. Fantastic. Dan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thanks very much. Dan Phil is the Chief Operating Officer of Dark Slope Studios in Toronto. Oh, thanks, guys. That was fun. Yeah, thank you. London, Bangkok, New York, Cincinnati. From the worldwide headquarters of Geeks and Beats magazine, this is a GNB News Update. 
Do you want an update on Geeks and Beasts going to CES 2020? Yeah, I do, because there's a wrinkle, but go ahead. Oh, uh-oh. No, it's a good wrinkle. Okay. When we last checked in on our GoFundMe campaign, we were at just shy of $1,200. But I had mentioned that because we already have cash in the bank, as it were, for, from the existing Patreon patrons, as well as the, the PayPal uh, fundraising, mm. we are almost, we're about 30% on okay. our way. Since our last update, Marty Steele has donated 20 bucks okay. to the GoFundMe campaign. And then the very next day, when you know what? I don't think that went far enough. He donated an additional $5 to the Geeks and Beats GoFundMe <laughs> campaign. Every bit counts. It does. <laughs> and here's the great thing about it. If you donate $100 or more to get us to CES 2020 so we can cover all the latest and greatest in technology that will be coming out that year, our patron in residence, Victor Biggio, will ship you a Geeks and Beats miracle travel mug of traveling, which using the power of science keeps hot beverages hot and cold beverages cold. Excellent. Okay. No. So, so what's what's in the kitty now? So what's in the kitty now? $1,225 on the GoFundMe campaign of our $10,000 goal, mind you. That's not, that's 13%. Where did the other 17% well, go? We, we still have that from Patreon. Okay, so what's, what do we got? In total, we are at 32% of the way, which means we've got enough cash to send you and me, but we're going to have to put our ace producer, Sean Jete, on a bus to Las Vegas. That's fine. We can't afford to fly him yet. No, it's fine. So as soon as we can afford to fly him, at least the three of us, We'll be able to keep shifts sleeping underneath the overpass. Do, do, do we really need them? Because I'm, I'm about to suggest something. Oh, you're oh. well, of course. We, we need somebody who can keep you and me on track, wrangle you, keep you from wandering off more than anything else, as well as shoot the video for us and help us edit. Right. All right. So here's uh, CES is January 7th to 10th. Right. But we're going to be there a little early because there's the preview nights. Yeah. So on the 8th and the 10th, uh, David Lee Roth has a residency starting at the Mandalay. I'm just a saying is you're going to see you're going to vegas anyway so we don't need to buy you a plane ticket no no no, no that wasn't <laughs> it i'm saying that you can go to the preview nights i'm gonna go see uh, dlr david lee roth mm-hmm david lee roth mm-hmm i make no apologies for that i was a big early van halen fan yeah, well there's really no justification sure there is 63 dollars and 50 cents plus taxes uh, what it's is that, that a man. ticket yeah a David Lee Roth, a David Lee Roth tickets sixty three bucks. Well, they start at sixty three fifty. Yeah, are, are you paying for the ticket or are you getting the whole I'm Alan Cross backstage um, routine? I don't think that that would actually work. Why not? Uh, you know, I don't have any privileges in Vegas. Yeah, but no, that's okay. Okay, so you're gonna you're gonna you and Sean go and do your thing. I'm gonna go see uh, Diamond Dave. 
So wait a minute. So now people are thinking, wait a minute. We're funding your personal trip. No, 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 to no, see no, no. David Lee no, freaking Roth. No, no, no. That's... Why would you want to see David Lee Roth? Well, I don't. Why not? Why not? Uh, what what did he ever do for Van Halen? Oh, oh no. Oh, okay. All right. We better move on because I'm getting mad. Just really? Move on. Yeah. Well, yes. I thought Eddie Vedder was the the brains oh, behind. God, here we go. Eddie Vedder was in Pearl Jam. It was no. Eddie, who am I thinking Eddie, then? Eddie Van Halen. Eddie Van Heflin. That's who I'm thinking. <laughs> You know what? Let's let's just move on right now. I'll I'll spring for my own ticket. I'll just send you and Sean to the uh, the preview nights, and I'm, I'm going to go see DLR on the eighth, uh, or the tenth, or the tenth. Yeah, which is well after CES. Doesn't matter. You won't see me those nights. All right, we'll we'll book it in then. Thank you. So, if you would like to support the show and help send us to the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas and send Alan to see David Lee Roth for some strange reason. <laughs> Um, please go to geeksandbeats.com. Right at the top of the page, there's a uh, help send us to CES 2020 button. And uh, that'll get you right to the GoFundMe campaign. We also want to say thank you to those who are patrons of the world's most popular podcast. Uh, those who um, go to patreon.com and find the Geeks and Beats account. Or go to geeksandbeats.com and click the support the show link. Um, these are people who have made it possible uh, for us to continue uh, to do the big show, as it were. Uh, including, and not limited to to uh, Michael Boulay, Michael Haggy, uh, we have uh, Michelle, Mike Lee, I'm on the M's by the way, Mike Tweedy, Mike Wise, Nick Alderati, and Oliver, um, oops, hang on, which one's this? Oliver Novak, Novakovich, sure. Pat McGuire, and Paul Luxton. Excellent. So thank you so much for supporting the big show. If you do so via Patreon, you can set a per episode limit and then a total lifetime limit so that we don't ding your credit card till kingdom come. Or if you go to geeksandbeats.com and click the support the show link and choose PayPal, we'll just do the recurring payment of a buck per episode. It was suggested by one of our big fans that we should change that from a dollar to two dollars. What do you think? Mm, yes. All right. Inflation. Inflation. The cost of doing business has just mm, gone up. So. All right. I, I do feel a little embarrassed about the Eddie Vedder thing. That's okay. You're forgiven. It's all that food and pill form that you take. Catch all new episodes of Geeks and Beats Wednesdays on iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Or stream us live at geeksandbeats.com. Support the show on Patreon and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for a daily dose of the world's most popular podcast with Alan Cross and Michael Hainsworth. The Geeks and Beats podcast would like to thank the National Science Foundation.